This morning, we will be closing out the book of Jonah. And I hope it's been profitable for you all. I trust it has been. It's unfortunate the book is so short because it's so good. Amen? But fortunately, all the books of the Bible are so good. So we have much more to look forward to next week and the weeks to be on. Uh, I'll invite the ushers to come forward now and distribute Bibles for those who would like to have a Bible in hand. We always encourage you to examine what comes from this pulpit and any pulpit for that matter uh, directly from God's unchanging word. So if you would like to uh, have a Bible in hand, put your hand up and the ushers will give it to you. We'll also have scripture up on the screen. What we've seen over the course of this last month is that in the story of Jonah, God's character is revealed in so many ways. We've seen that over the last four weeks. We've seen he is sovereign over all things, the natural and the supernatural. We've seen that he is purposeful. He is patient and kind. He is just. He's not okay with wickedness. And we've seen that he's unbelievably merciful, right? He loves to save people from their evil. Amen? Hallelujah. We've also seen about the character of Jonah, who represents the heart of God's people, the Israelites. Stubborn, selfish, arrogant, imperialistic, hypocritical, vindictive, or unmerciful. We've seen over the last four weeks that this book also leads us to examine our hearts before God. So consider our hearts with me for a moment. Think about the endings of good action movies. In a good action movie, there's always that bad guy that really gets to you throughout the whole movie. Maybe it's a gal. Really gets to you throughout the whole movie, and you can't wait until he gets his. (laughs) Now, let me ask you, what do you typically want for him or her? Get arrested, stand before the court of law, become overtaken in sorrowful repentance, maybe go off to a good rehab in Palm Beach? (laughs) Oh, no. If you're like me, you want to see the bad guy's destiny play out like that of a movie I recall from the early 90s. I'm not going to name it because I wouldn't advise that you see it, but I remember the ending. The bad guy is fighting Arnold Schwarzenegger. On a hovering jet, the bad guy falls off the jet but gets caught on a missile head on the wing of the jet. Schwarzenegger runs, jumps back into the cockpit, looks at him and says, goodbye. (laughs) Sends the bad guy flying off, hanging on the missile head, shoots him right into a helicopter filled with the bad guy's gangs. Gang, ah, ah, (laughs) me at 12 years old, yes, (laughs) down with them. We love it. We love vengeance. 
Justice is served. Right? Except, of course, when retribution is due our way. <laughs> that's, that's, a diff that's a different story. Right? That's a different story. Maybe, but it's something we have to reckon with if we want to be people of integrity. Right? Oh, we love, we also love mercy and grace when it's extended our way. But what about when it's extended toward our enemies? Thus far in the book of Jonah, God's mercy has shined like the sun over all the characters we've met. The sailors lavished with mercy. Jonah, lavished with mercy. The whole city of Nineveh, lavished with mercy. What we saw at the end of chapter 3 last week is a prophet's dream come true. Was it not? All of Nineveh repents and believes in God. This really happened. Jesus refers back in the Gospels to this historical event. This really happened. This would be like the restoration of Narnia at the end of Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Remember where, where everyone, everything that's stone is transformed into flesh and new life? or the end of Maleficent, the restoration of the Moors, but in real life. This really happened. Can you imagine, say, walking up Broadway, entering into Times Square, saying, 40 days and the city will be overturned. And all of Times Square stops and repents and believes in God? That's what happened. It would be marvelous. The whole city would, would be transformed. It would radiate glory abounding to God. What more could an evangelist ask for? Now let's see how Jonah, God's prophet, responds. Let me pray first. Lord Jesus, we come to you today with heavy hearts, tough lives. Many of us are weighed down, Lord, hurting. We come to you now. Would you grant us your peace? Lord, as we gather and read your word and search for peace in our hearts, Lord, we also pray for peace in the Middle East, in this war that's just broken out. Lord, we pray that you would intervene, bring peace there, raise up your, your, your children, Lord, to intercede with the hope of the gospel for the sake of peace. Lord, give us your peace this morning, we pray, as we read your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read Jonah chapter 4, the first five verses. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. 
For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So the last verse in chapter 3, last week where we ended, showed that the city turns from their evil. God turns from bringing evil upon them, destruction that they deserve. And to Jonah, the Hebrew says here in verse 1, literally, this was exceedingly evil evil to Jonah, or evil to Jonah with a great evil. So evil, he becomes angry, literally translated hot. He becomes hot, filled with fury, scandalized by God's grace. So he turns to God in prayer and reveals the depths of his heart. I told you this would happen. I knew you would do this. That is why I fled to Tarshish. The big reveal. At the beginning of the book, we readers wonder, why is he fleeing like this? Well, I guess it makes sense. Those guys are really bad. I'd be scared too. So we take our speculations through the book until the end, Jonah reveals himself why he fled. I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. I knew it. What Jonah is doing here is he's throwing God's words at him in a bizarre twist of events. And we have to see this because this is the climax of the irony in the book. Okay? Flashback to one of the darkest moments in Israel's history. Back in the book of Exodus, soon after God delivers his people from the hands of the Egyptians after 400 years of slavery, he delivers them through the Red Sea. First thing God does is he reaffirms his covenant his covenantal commitment to them. You're going to be my treasured possession. And the people respond, yes, we will follow you in all our ways. God then calls Moses up Mount Sinai to give him his law, to keep his people living in harmony with him. As Moses is up there, the people begin to turn back to idols and false gods. Remember the golden calf they made? Just like that, they turn from God. In Exodus 32, God says to Moses on the mountain, You see, I know these people. They are a stiff-necked people. Now get out the way. My wrath burns hot against them. I'm going to wipe them out and make a great nation out of you. And Moses intercedes, please, please have mercy. These are your people. Why does your wrath burn so hot? 
You saved them. Remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Please, O oh God, relent. And 32.14 notes, The Lord relented from the disaster He had spoken of bringing on His people. Almost word for word, Jonah 3.10, as God relents from bringing disaster on Nineveh. Then Moses asks to see God's glory, and God himself passes by Moses partially, announcing who he is. And God says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is who God is. Now, can you see the irony in Jonah 4? Jonah knows this is God's character because he's seen this extravagant grace before. When it was first lavished on him and his people. Us readers should be making these connections saying, what? Bro, what did you just say to him? Do you hear yourself? Those words that you just threw at him are the reason why you exist. The reason why you have anything. Because he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah has forgotten where he came from. He can't see anymore. A couple literary features to note here that emphasize this point. Notice the stark contrast between Jonah's two prayers in the book. The first is in chapter 2 when he was swallowed up in the belly of the fish. It's the whole chapter. He's praising God for His mercy toward me. Second prayer, right here. Chapter 4. Jonah's swallowed up in his anger. He gets two lines. He deplores God for His mercy for them. That's significant. Notice also what happens when you follow this word to know throughout the book. First, the sailors in chapter 1 cry out, Who knows? Remember, they're hauling the cargo. Who knows? Perhaps a God will show us something. We need to know the cause of all this. Then in chapter 3, the king of Nineveh. Who knows? Maybe God will relent from his anger. Chapter 4, Jonah, I knew. You see that? It's scary, actually. The reality is, the one who should know God's word and his ways doesn't really know at all. The one who should know right from wrong, up from down, is the one who calls evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. 
Jonah is so hot with anger at what he perceives to be evil of God, he shouts, just kill me now. In other words, Jonah goes so far as to say, over my dead body will I live to see you forgive these people who certainly don't deserve it. And how can anyone miss God's patient, gentle response here? Do you do well to be angry? So merciful, so caring. One commentator notes an important feature of this dialogue now. The Lord of history, who rules the wind and the sea and over the mighty power of death, who has converted and saved an entire wicked metropolis, stoops down to hold a conversation with a pouting child. Oh, what patience. Oh, what grace. It's true. How does Jonah respond to this gentle word? Nothing. He simply ignores God and walks away. Verse 5 says, Jonah leaves the city and sits down, maybe on a hill or so, overlooking the city to see what will happen. You think Jonah wants to see fireworks coming up from the celebrations of salvation? Or fire and brimstone coming down upon the city? Probably the latter. This brother's not doing so well. Let's read the next three verses, six through nine. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So, Jonah walks away, ignores God, and sits down outside the city, sulking in anger. God looks at him and says, okay, let's, let's try another way. And he appoints a plant to spring up and provide shade for Jonah. God wants to teach Jonah something about his mercy and grace. He's trying to teach him something here. Notice, God appoints the plant, just like he appointed the big fish, to save him from his discomfort. Again here, the English translations don't capture the theme of the book well by softening these words. Discomfort there is that word evil again. God wants to save Jonah from his evil. The plant springs up, and Jonah is exceedingly glad. He's happy. He's actually happy for the first time. He's not just a miserable prig. There are things that actually make him happy, like safety, security, and comfort. 
Notice the play on words. God delivers Nineveh from their evil and Jonah's exceedingly angry. But when God delivers Jonah from his evil, he's exceedingly glad. Okay, so he's awake now. And that was probably a good night for Jonah Bear. Nice and comfy up against that plant. All they needed was some honey. <clears throat> nice and cozy. Then at dawn, God appoints a worm. You gotta love this story. Attention! Forward march! The worm attacks the plant. The plant is done. Then God throws a scorching wind from the east and appoints the sun to beat down or literally attack Jonah's head. The worm's attacking the plant. The sun's attacking Jonah on his head with its rays. And Jonah bear wakes up. Enough! Kill me already! God's got his attention now. But he's still selfish, even in his cry. It is better for me to die than to live. You can't miss this irony. Before, he wants to die because Nineveh was delivered from disaster. Now, he wants to die because he's not delivered from his disaster. He deserves deliverance. Do you see the pattern yet? Is it not glaring in our face? Has his heart been exposed enough yet? Maybe for us. But does he see it? God is trying to show him how fickle his heart is. He's incredibly unstable. Think about the movement of Jonah's lesson in the book. Chapter 1. God calls Jonah this way, he goes that way. Then, when confronted by the sailors, he says, throw me over, kill me now. Then God saves him. Woohoo! Thank you, Lord. Then he saves Nineveh. Kill me now. Then he saves him again with the plant. Woohoo! I love this plant. Then the plant dies. Kill me now. The only thing that's stable is who remains number one in Jonah's life. Jonah thinks that the most sinful people on earth are the Ninevites. But who does the story show to be the most sinful of all? That's scary. God is trying to get his attention by appointing a big fish, a medium-sized plant, and a small worm until he's face to face with Yahweh. And Yahweh asks him the same question again, but with more specificity, a different angle. 
Do you do well to be angry about the plant? Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die, he answers. And he's still convinced he's in the right. Why is he so angry? You think it's because he's a militant vegetarian? <laughs> he loved that plant. Probably not. Let's zoom out for a moment. We are reading a historical account of God's beloved chosen people. This is Jonah, prophet of God, among God's people, the Israelites. These were the ones whom God said, I choose you to be the recipients of my love from all the people of the earth. These were the richest, most blessed people in all the world because of God's covenant to them. The most secure, the most satisfied. Well, then what could possibly lead them or one of them here to grow so cold, so selfish, so arrogant? It's very simple. And we can understand it all too well. Ingratitude. Ungratefulness. Jonah has gotten to a point where his election, his identity, his call and role in the world is simply taken for granted. Now, he's entitled to these things. He deserves these things. He can't see his own need for grace, mercy, and forgiveness anymore. He can't see it. And those who don't see their own need for grace, mercy, and forgiveness are the quickest to withhold it from others. We read this book and watch God trying to get Jonah's attention. And we say, Jonah... What are you doing? Come on, man, give up. And we must heed the words of first century Latin author Horace who said, Why laugh? Change but the name in the tale is told of you. Does God appoint trouble and calamity in our lives to wake us up? To get our attention? You bet he does. Go home and read Amos chapter 4. You may see in your Bible chapter title, Yet you did not return to me. God says over and over again in that chapter, I sent this to you and you did not return. I sent that to you and you did not return. I withheld this from you and you did not return. I withheld that from you and you did not return. Now, Lest you think God is a vindictive God. That does not mean that God is the cause of brokenness and suffering. Oh no. He's the redeemer from it. He's the real refuge. He wants us to know that. To run to Him, to cling to Him, to hold on tighter to Him than anything else in the world. 
All through the book, we see Jonah seeking refuge in everything else but God, the one true rock and redeemer. God wants us, our hearts, our minds, our worship, our whole selves, because He loves us. Like a parent to a child, we understand only in part, but we can get this. He wants us to know this is who He is for us because it's truly good for us. And our security and joy in Him radiates His glory and beauty all the more in the world around us. When everybody sees that we are unshakably secure in Him. Jonah lost sight of this reality. He couldn't see it. Can you? He wants you to know Him. Let's look at the final two verses here in verses 10 and 11. Interesting to note here, both Jonah and God have equal airtime in this chapter. Both speak exactly 39 words, but God gets the final word. He opens the book, he closes the book. Let's read the, the, the closing two verses. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that's it. So, starting back at verse 9, Jonah is done. I mean, this brother's done. Volcanic eruption, he's flatlined, and yet God still reasons with him. You care that much about the plant? A 12-hour relationship in which you had no involvement in its birth and growth? If you care that much about that plant, should I not? Care about that great city of Nineveh? Filled with 120,000 people who I made in my image? And they're lost? They're misguided. They don't know their right hand from their left. They should be going one way and they go another. Sound familiar? They should be doing one thing and they do another. Sound familiar? Oh, they'll be held accountable, but they're misguided. Should I not care to show them the way and the cattle? I got nothing for you on the cows, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got nothing for you on the cows, except that God cares about the animals as well. And that's good enough. So that's it. The main point of God's lesson right there. Notice Jonah's last words, what they were in the book. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry unto death. Literally. This is the only place in the Old Testament, this phrase, even unto death, or to the point of death, is used. That phrase should ring a bell for most of us. Where Jonah sits 
in his sin, boiling in exceeding anger, so extreme he wants to die. Jesus, the one who's greater than Jonah, sat in the garden of Gethsemane. The night that he was betrayed and before going to the cross prayed, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. The weight of bearing our sin upon himself was crushing. Yet he was willing to die in our place, the place of judgment that we, his enemies, deserve. Where Jonah storms out east of the city, looking over it, seething in anger, hoping it gets destroyed, Jesus leaves east of the city of Jerusalem, looking over it with tears in his eyes and compassion in his heart. Sheep without a shepherd. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you would only know how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers its chickies. If you only knew. Is this not the same heart of God who closes out this book in his final words to Jonah? Is that not the same heart? Same God? How merciful. One of the main points of this book is that God's grace is not earned or deserved. He lavishes his grace and his mercy on the undeserving. Those who receive it with repentance and faith in humility, who've come to acknowledge it's not about what I have accomplished or I'm able to bring to the table. I got nothing. It's all about you and the overflow of your goodness and mercy toward me. One of the greatest conflicts of this book is how can Jonah love a God who loves his enemies? That's one of the greatest conflicts in the book. Jonah simply rejects it. Rejects him, rejects it. No room to reconcile that. But the answer to that question and the power behind it is found in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus came and redefined what an enemy is. He made very clear that the line of judgment between good and evil comes right down the middle of every one of us. The one place where all hate, prejudice, racism, classism, imperialism, where it all falls flat is at the foot of the cross, where our commonness is truly revealed. At the foot of the cross, humanity stands united in our depravity and our sinfulness before God. And at the foot of the cross, humanity stands united in our only hope for redemption. We are all born into this world as enemies. Enemies of God, that is. We deserve death he brings us new life. The Bible says, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. The ungodly. The just 
for the unjust. On the cross, God's grace, God's justice and mercy meet in perfect love for us. The glorious graces of the gospel are universal for everyone who believes in him. Everyone. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? Do we really want everyone to experience this grace? Do we want everyone to believe in him? Really? Do we ever withhold grace and dispense evil? Just think about all the places in society where we draw lines between us and them. Us and them. It's everywhere. It is everywhere. Do we draw more boundary lines to keep people away from us than we do drawing near to people with the grace and truth of the Christ. For Christians, the first sign that God really is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, is you. We're the proof of that great truth. What does that really mean to you? That we're the signs of it, of who he is. Mercy begets mercy. When you receive God's merciful forgiveness, you have the power to love your enemies, to actually care about them. Who are your enemies? Just think. Who makes your blood boil hot? Remember our brother Jacob, Yaakov from Syria? We were praying for three weeks for his release. Kidnapped from a militant group, from, taken from his wife and his one-year-old girl. Did you see his testimony? We sent it out via email. Our dear brother was blindfolded with duct tape for three weeks, tied up, beaten, tortured, all the while thinking if he'll ever see his wife and one-year-old girl again. And he, and he shares with us that three weeks in, they come around him and they say, you hate us, don't you? You want us dead, don't you? And he says, no, no, I don't. It is not flesh and blood whom we war with. Oh, my family. That's the power of the gospel. Who's your enemies again? Is God trying to teach you something about his mercy and grace? Take that question with you. The book ends open-ended on purpose. We don't know whether Jonah ever responds or repents. 
one strong indicator that he likely did repent at some point is that we have the story. Think about that. How could a story like this ever be told in such detail where he himself looks terrible from beginning to end unless Jonah himself has come to experience the true grace of God? Just a thought. The book ends open because its intent is not to conclude with Jonah in focus, but you. The story turns into a mirror. How will you respond to God's grace and mercy? That's the question at the end of the book. That's God's intention through the narrator at the end of this book. Will you look over the city through the eyes of Jonah or through the eyes of Jesus with anger and vengeful hearts or with compassion and mercy? In the closing scene of Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever, the new Black Panther, Suri, the sister of the original Black Panther, is standing over her enemy, Namor, filled with rage and vengeance, spear in her hand, ready to end his life. When her mother, Ramonda, calls out, Shuri, show them who you are. She drops the spear, lends a hand. That's a good ending. In view of God's mercy, Christians, show them who we are. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our hearts are so weak and vulnerable, so fickle. Lord, we look to Jonah, we laugh, we point fingers, and we know, we know, we know we share the same heart and mind. Too often, Lord, would you forgive us? Lord, your grace is glorious. We don't want to ever take that for granted. Free us from anger. Free us from sin, hate, brokenness, Lord. Help us to see and behold the beauties of the gospel of Jesus. Awaken faith among us this morning, Lord. We call out to you for peace with you through the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us, that in your death we might have life. Help us believe and follow you in freedom, peace, joy, and security, that you would be honored and glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, family. Have a wonderful week.